Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learn something and enjoy listening. Today I am speaking to the lovely Dr. Erica Drassar, a child and adolescent psychiatrist and eating disorder specialist based in the USA. I pick Erica's brain on the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders, the many disorders listed in the DSM-5 manual, cross-cultural prevalence and more. I really, really hope you learned something. So Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. Please, can we start with an introduction to yourself? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me today. My name is Dr. Erica Jarasa. I am a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. I'm a co-owner of a private practice called Catalyst Therapeutic Services in Durham, North Carolina. And I actually wanted to go into pediatrics from the age I was about five. (laughs) And it wasn't until I got to medical school that I realized I much rather would work with individuals who were suffering from psychiatric and mental health conditions. I, I really didn't like the physical exam and just looking in the ear really quickly and then moving on to my patient, another patient in two to three minutes. So I really enjoy just being able to take time to evaluate a patient and to understand how their social life impacts their emotions and how that impacts their behaviors. So that's when I realized that a career in psychiatry was for me. And I kind of fell upon specializing in eating disorders. So during my training as a child psychiatry fellow, we were given an opportunity to work with the eating disorder clinic. I had an amazing experience working with the Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders at Duke and working with a lot of really great researchers. And I figured as a child psychiatrist, I probably should know how to treat eating disorders. So it wasn't something that I was planning on going into. But when I did start the work, I was just really blown away because I realized how many biases I had about eating disorders and my perception of them was just completely off and realizing that many individuals suffer from eating disorders from all backgrounds. And there's a lot of diversity when it comes to individuals with eating disorders. And it just kind of sparked my interest. And there ended up being an opportunity where I was able to work at a hospital that specializes in the treatment of eating disorders and started working there for a little while. And we grew and I became the medical director of their child and adolescent hospital. And it was just such a rewarding experience. We were able to treat individuals starting from, you know, a partial hospitalization program all the way up to inpatient services. And I saw just so many different presentations of eating disorders, working with kids as young as eight, all the way up to, of course, you know, emerging adults. And it was just an amazing, empowering experience, especially to see individuals overcome their eating disorders. Although I don't solely treat individuals with eating disorders, I do see a lot of individuals and I treat coexisting psychiatric conditions as well, which are very common with individuals who have eating disorders. So anxiety disorders, mood disorders, ADHD, bipolar disorder, you name it. I I see it all. (laughs) So that's how I got into the field. 
Well, it's incredible. I just think psychiatry is so fascinating. It takes so much time and work to specialise as a psychiatrist and then to specialise in eating disorders. I'm in awe and I love that you pointed out the kind of natural biases and misunderstanding and misconception around eating disorders. It's often shown in the media or in films, but actually there's way more to it. So I actually wanted to ask you, there's a bit of a grey area what's a good relationship with food and what's a bad relationship with food? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I I think a lot of people often ask that. And what my response is is that I usually try to limit judgments when it comes to food or when it comes to our relationship to food. So I try to limit the use of good or bad or sometimes even healthy or unhealthy because I think at least here in in the United States and American culture, we put so much association and judgment and criticism with those words when we relate those words to either food or our relationship to food or even our bodies and the behaviors that we engage in, that this is all good or all bad. It happens so naturally, right? Because we see it on the media, we see it in the news, we operate that way ourselves. So I try to help my patients understand that we want to have a balanced relationship with food. We really want to make sure that we're treating food exactly as it is, that it's nourishment, it's fuel for our bodies, just like if you're driving a car, you can't drive a car on E, you need fuel. And there are times when we may utilize food as a means of coping, right? So we're emotional, we may eat because we're just having a tough day or a rough day. And that can be okay, right? But there are times I could, I could say I've had stress, especially in the midst of this pandemic. And here in North Carolina, now it's sunny and warm and 70 degrees. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm stressed. I deserve some ice cream and that is okay. It's how much are we depending on food to cope with our emotions or are we restricting and limiting our food intake again because of negative emotion or negative associations between food and body image. That if I eat this, then I must be X, Y, Z. Or if I eat that, then that's a bad thing. And you know, I need to only eat healthy food. So really trying to Just be aware and cautious of healthy versus unhealthy, good versus bad, or any other judgments we make around food and really focusing on, okay, what is a balanced way to approach food? Now with eating disorders, it can be a challenge because disordered eating may not necessarily mean one has an eating disorder, but it can be a precursor. And it is something that I check in with all my patients on, even if they don't come to me with an eating disorder or think that they're coming to me for the treatment of their eating disorder, I should say, because there are many times when I end up diagnosing someone with an eating disorder when their primary presentation was for depression or anxiety. And I ask, okay, what is your relationship to food? And realize, oh, there may be some disordered eating behaviors here that I just need to keep an eye on. Or, okay, hmm, maybe these disordered eating behaviors are actually leading to impairment. That's really when it crosses over to a true disorder is when we see impairment, where it gets in a way of our everyday living, whether that's work or school or home life or if it's causing any kind of medical challenges or any kind of physical impairment. So that's really the line that we we cross and it doesn't necessarily have to quote unquote meet criteria for a specific eating disorder either. Do we know how many people are impacted by disordered eating and what might 
contribute to that? Absolutely. I think I've seen numbers prevalence as high as like 50, 60, or even sometimes higher, you know, in a population at any, any given point in time. And I think it's important to realize that even beyond disordered eating, maybe 10 to 12% of the population will have a diagnosed eating disorder at some point in their lifetime. So it can be very common, especially in certain populations or at certain stages of development. So in adolescence, definitely in emerging adulthood, that's when we see higher rates of disordered eating. And that can be due to a lot of different things. It could be due to cultural upbringing, you know, what our expectations are in terms of body image and that relationship to food and how we maintain what we expect to be dealing with stress and anxiety and depression, you know, that can definitely lead to disordered eating. If you're not interested in life and you're depressed and when you have a sense of apathy, that can impact your appetite, which can then lead to disordered eating behaviors and patterns. I think just the busyness of life, you know, especially in the midst of a pandemic, it can be very hard because we're all losing a sense of structure and a sense of routine, right? You know, we're not getting up and physically leaving a home unless you're an essential worker, you know, we're losing a lot of our routine. And that means we may be snacking either more or less or just not carving out time for us to have, again, a balanced meal sitting down and eating and mindfully and, you know, enjoying a meal, we're running, 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 or we're at home and we just don't schedule it for ourselves. So there can be a lot of different reasons why. And then of course, again, culture, and I don't know what, you know, not being there in the UK, not really sure what it's like there, but I can imagine it's very similar to the United States where we have this big diet culture right now. I mean, uh, in January, I, I wish I could like count all the commercials that are dedicated to weight loss and, you know, going on a diet and, you know, think about all the information we're getting about, you know, keto diet and, you know, so many different types of diets. People are definitely more consumed with how they're eating and, you know, maybe engaging in behaviors that may put them at risk for developing an eating disorder. But I like that you didn't, you haven't kind of pathologized it. For example, eating ice cream earlier just because you were stressed. It's, it doesn't have to mean that there's something wrong with you if you're responding to stress or difficult circumstances it doesn't mean that you necessarily have an eating disorder absolutely and we have to look at it in terms of the cultural perspective too right and you know for a lot of cultures I know for mine and in my family it's like okay if we're celebrating we're eating <laughs> you know if we're if if there's a, a death or a loss and we have a funeral well the way that we show love to one another is by giving food to comfort right so there is something that's comforting about food, that's okay. We don't want to pathologize it. It's when, again, we start to notice a pattern that be then can sometimes lead us into that direction of developing a disorder, again, resulting in impairment, that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah, when it kind of gets in the way of, of normality. I hate that word, but you, <laughs> we'll use that for the sake. But no, I think you, you said something and it's like what you're thinking. And I think that's important too. If we're overly thinking it, right, and all of our thoughts seem to be consumed by what we're eating or what we're not eating and being planful and maybe avoiding, you know, certain experiences, going out with friends, of course, socially distanced with our mask on. <laughs> if we're, but if we're doing those things and we're finding ourselves overthinking it, 
I think that can be another indication that, okay, maybe we need to pull back just a little bit because with eating disorders, that's exactly what happens. Our thoughts just become totally consumed with it. It's hard to even concentrate and focus on other things because we are just so, I'll use the word obsessed. It can be like an obsession about food and about what we're eating or what we're not eating and how planful we are. And even that can be impairing, right? We, we want to be able to think about other things besides that. So I think, you know, if you're noticing that those thoughts are just consuming and it's hard to pull away from those thoughts, then that might be another, another indication that this is leading down a path towards a disorder. It's so interesting. I mean, thinking about kind of the environmental implications and, and the social aspects of it, it's huge. But I did want to ask you about genes and biology and whether there was any role that those played in the onset of an eating disorder. Is there kind of a genetic role at all or biological role? Yes, absolutely. There is certainly a genetic component to the development of eating disorders. And some research studies say that it can account for 25 to 75%. We have great research, but we still need to do a lot of research, especially in certain cultures. And I think there's a lot of work to be done, but there's a lot of variation, right, in the numbers that we see. But 25 to 75% of cases can be accounted for due to genetic background. And that's pretty common for most psychiatric and mental health conditions, that if you have the right genetic load or genetic background to predispose you to an eating disorder, and that combined with the right trigger, the right environmental stressor, those two things can then lead to the development of an eating disorder. And then also taking into account personality, you know, the disposition of that individual, their upbringing, you know, what were the cultural norms, what's being taught in the family, that sort of thing, and what they're being exposed to in their greater environment. But again, there's definitely a combination between that biological factor and also the stressor in the environment that can lead to the development of the eating disorder. And it's so interesting because I ask, you know, whenever I see an individual or a kid or an adolescent with an eating disorder, it's, it's so amazing that a lot of times they do have a family history and they just don't even realize it. But the parent may say, you know, Oh, when I was in college, I did kind of struggle with such and such, or yeah, we, you know, there's an aunt who's dealing with an eating disorder and, or they may have other types of psychiatric conditions. So maybe not an eating disorder, but there may be a family history of the depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder or a personality disorder. So, you know, that it's important to get that family history whenever we're confronting individuals with eating disorders, because it can definitely play a role. What is interesting and important to point out about what you've said is that it's nobody's fault that someone develops an eating disorder. It's not the family's fault. It's not the person's fault. It's not the friend's fault. It is a combination of all of these different things. So it's so important to take all of them into account, but it's never going to be one thing. It unfortunately probably is a perfect storm, would you say? Mm -hmm. That the triggers, the biology, hormones play a role too, you know, which is why we tend to see these develop during adolescence, you know, what changes are happening from a hormonal standpoint. And it's so important to highlight that to families because I do think there can be a lot of shame associated with eating disorders. And, you know, I'll have parents tell me, oh my gosh, this is my fault. Like, you know, I should have, should have said this or I shouldn't have said that. And it's like, hey, look, there's no perfect parent out there. If you find one, show me. <laughs> I'll 
would love to meet that person. But it's not about perfection. It really, we can't blame one individual for the development of an eating disorder. And it's not going to be useful for you or your family to blame yourself, right? Again, this is a biological condition. And that's the important thing I like to highlight that just like our body, you know, we have lots of different organs, right? We have a heart, we have kidneys, we have lungs. So we can have diseases that impact all of those organs. So of course we have a brain and we can develop brain disorders. So I like to frame it in that way, that it truly is a brain disorder, it's a brain disease, and that we can't be responsible for the onset of a brain disease, just like we can't be responsible for developing heart condition or thyroid, you know, hypothyroidism. You know, it's we wouldn't approach it in that way if we were talking about other physical conditions. So I think it's really important to highlight that this is indeed a brain disease. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of it like this, but when I think of anxiety and depression, I think what are some protective factors to prevent me from from developing it? But we don't really say that about eating disorders, do we? What can I what can I do to not develop an eating disorder? I've never ever heard anyone say that. Yeah, yeah, I think you know, now we are I think trying to be more intentional about what is being portrayed and perpetuated in the media in terms of the ideal of beauty, in terms of thinness, and really trying to get rid of photoshopping. There are a lot of really great companies like Dove, which is really working on, hey, how can we embrace beauty at all sizes, health at all size? That way we can just approach body image in in a different way and not expect ourselves to fit into this narrow definition of what we think our body should look like and be accepting of, you know, the fact that we come in all different shapes and sizes and we can radically accept who we are. So I think in terms of prevention, those would be some areas where we can do better, I think, as a society in terms of, you know, embracing all different body types and not labeling again, like, hey, because you have a bigger or larger body, you should be focused on losing weight. No, some people have larger and bigger bodies and that's okay. (laughs) They can still be very healthy, even at a larger or bigger size. We don't have to put so much emphasis on thinness. I actually have wanted to ask you about this because lots of people will associate an eating disorder with extreme weight loss, but we know that, that people with a higher body weight can have an eating disorder. So I guess I wanted to ask, does being in a larger body act as a risk factor? Or is there any kind of cause or association between that? And also just kind of outlining, you know, what eating disorders can develop for those in in a larger body, because I don't want to just focus on anorexia, which most people I think think about, but obviously we know there's lots more. Absolutely. Such a great question. And I think that's where I had to learn even during my training. I went into eating disorders work thinking I was only going to see individuals with anorexia nervosa. And I was quite surprised that actually that was the small, you know, that was like the smallest percentage of patients that I actually worked with. You know, the reality is that some of the other eating disorders like binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder out of all of the eating disorders. Bulimia nervosa is far more common. Other specified eating or eating disorders, ARFID, which is avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. So there are lots of different disorders. However, if we were to go on Google, right, and search eating disorder, what we would see would be a gazillion pictures of 
probably Caucasian women with anorexia. So we have been fed this idea that it only impacts people who are really thin and Caucasian women, when in reality, they impact all, all races, all sizes. And the, the interesting thing too, is that the research shows really only about six to 7% of individuals with eating disorders are classified as being medically underweight. Only six to seven, right. <laughs> so that just goes to show you, actually the majority of people who suffer from eating disorders are, are maybe within a normal weight range or have a larger body, but they're not necessarily underweight. And that's really important to know. There are people who can struggle with anorexia symptoms now because of the definitions and how we classify, they may not be given that diagnosis, but I've seen individuals who at normal body weights or higher body weights dealing with full true anorexia and being misdiagnosed sometimes because again, people are making misconceptions. So, you know, those folks who do have larger body sizes often get overlooked and they are about half as likely to be diagnosed with an eating disorder. So we, we miss those individuals all the time, but that doesn't mean they're not suffering. Actually, they are indeed suffering and it leads to a lot of impairment. So it, it can be a risk factor and to answer your question in, in terms of developing an eating disorder because of excessive goal and, and, you know, and intention to manipulate weight via restriction or a combination of binging and purging, which can come in many different forms. We usually think of purging as just one form traditionally, but there are lots of different ways to purge. So a higher body weight or a larger body size can definitely be a risk factor and it can be an outcome as a result of repetitive eating disorder behaviors. Yeah, and that's scary because that's happening because they go unnoticed. I mean, I've heard of well, when I was working in a hospital last year, people would sometimes be diagnosed with atypical anorexia. And I think I'm right in thinking that that's, you are not necessarily impacted by your body weight, but you have the symptoms of anorexia. But the fact that it's called atypical, and you've just said that most people aren't underweight shows that actually the underweight should be atypical. You know, that's the challenge. And I think some of the downfalls are DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. For those of you who may not know, it's a pretty much the Bible that we use to diagnose all psychiatric conditions. It's not perfect though. It's, you know, it's constantly evolving. You know, we are now in version five. My hope is that we can continue to evolve and develop so that we can just revisit some of the nomenclature and see that sometimes that may be disempowering for some folks, um, you know, some of the language that we use, but you're absolutely right. That's probably one of my biggest pet peeves. And I don't even say atypical anorexia. I just call it, I'm like, it's anorexia. <laughs> if you are having delusions about what you look like, if you're engaging in extreme restrictive behaviors, regardless of where your weight is, it's dangerous, it's causing impairment, then I'm treating that as anorexia. And that's the thing too. I mean, we're using diagnoses that really is to help each other as providers and doctors and dietitians, nutritionists and therapists to have a common language to know, okay, how do we want to approach treating this disorder? Because there will be certain approaches that we'll take depending on the type of eating disorder. Again, just like any other psychiatric condition, right? We're going to treat depression, maybe atypical depression, right? <laughs> Different than maybe we would seasonal affective um, 
depression, right? So I think it's important, you know, that we have that understanding so we know how to go about treating. But I try not to get so caught up in the diagnosis because I do think individuals can sometimes get hung up on it a little bit and, you know, say, okay, well, what, what do I have? Do I have this or that? And I like to kind of pull back and say, you know, let's focus more so on the symptoms and on the behaviors themselves, how we can help you have a better relationship with yourself and your body and then with food and exercise or body movement, if that's a part of the picture as well. But yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> no, it's so interesting because I'd wanted to ask because in the DSM, as you say, that is anorexia, there's binge eating disorder, there's also eating disorder not otherwise specified. I wanted to touch on that in terms of how many eating disorders are diagnosed as that. And I was going to ask, how do you treat that? But hearing you say that just makes me think you treat it based on the symptoms and experience of that individual. Yeah, so I think, you know, what DSM-5 tried to do by including binge eating disorder in the last edition of DSM is to kind of help pull some of those individuals out of that, what we used to call EDNOS or eating disorder not otherwise specified, which now we've relabeled <laughs> OSFED, which is other specified feeding or eating disorder. And then there's UFED, which is unspecified feeding or eating disorder. It's all confusing. But essentially what it means is that those individuals may not necessarily meet full criteria of a certain diagnosis. So for instance, maybe they they have binge eating disorder behaviors, but maybe they will binge for like two weeks straight and then can go for a whole month without binging. So because of the time frame and DSM-5 is kind of specific on like X amount of binges per week and X amount of purges per week, you know, so we get into those nitty gritty details. So the individuals with OSFED or other specified feeding or eating disorder may not meet those specific criteria that will land them a diagnosis as, of binge eating or anorexia nervosa, restricting type or binge purge type, or even bulimia nervosa. So it could be that the duration of symptoms are just different or how they're manifested is a little bit different. But again, at the end of the day, they're still causing impairment. You know, maybe they're not engaging in binging and purging behaviors. Maybe they're just engaging in purging behaviors, right? And just eating a, a typical balanced meal, but it's not necessarily a binge followed by a purge. You know, so there can be other ways that it can manifest itself. Maybe those behaviors only occur at night, right? So there are lots of different, you know, just tiny little details that can, if, if they don't meet that full criteria of an eating disorder, they may get placed in that bucket, if you will. But that doesn't mean it's not as impairing. It doesn't mean it's not a disorder. You know, it just means, okay, it doesn't fully meet the criteria established by these experts who wrote the book. <laughs> In terms of your question, how do we treat? Again, it really is going to depend on the presentation in that individual. And that's going to be true regardless, right? When it comes to eating disorder treatment or any psychiatric condition, of course, we're coming in with our knowledge and understanding of how that illness progresses and manifests itself, but we're always putting it within the frame and the context of treating the individual, right? So we have to be very creative and think about how to include their social supports and network and, you know, or, you know, maybe religion is important and we need to incorporate, you know, their, their pastor or their mentors 
we need to make sure we're providing culturally informed care. So what are some different things we can do to, you know, make sure we're addressing their individual needs? So that, that goes without saying, but again, you know, the other specified feeding or eating disorder group can definitely experience a lot of impairment and it's important to treat them in that way. And just on that, do we treat eating disorders just therapeutically or is there a role with medication as well? I know that CBTE, which has been developed in Oxford, I think is made specifically for eating disorders. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. So there are no specific medications that are curative when it comes to eating disorders. And that's pretty much true for any kind of psychiatric condition. But there can be ways that we can utilize medications to help reduce symptoms. Now, there are, at least here in the United States, FDA approved. I'm like, I don't know what FDA approved there and uh, what that um, entity is in the UK. (laughs) But there's a role for certain stimulants, for instance, for the treatment of binge eating disorder. So Vyvanse, for instance, does have an indication for that. Now, I always tell my patients, this is not a cure for the binge eating. We have to focus on the behavior first and foremost. That's always, in my opinion, even though I'm a psychiatrist and I I do prescribe medications, I also do therapy and I, I really value the role of therapy because it actually does change and shift the, the biology and the chemistry of the brain. So there are, there are synapses, the, the communication between neurons and our brain actually get to be a little stronger and rewired with therapy. So therapy works. It's actually a great, great treatment for any eating disorder. So that's always going to be number one. Now, figuring out what kind of therapeutic approach, yes, we may do like a CBT-based approach or maybe FBT or maybe the individual needs a DBT. And for those of you who are like, okay, ABCDFBT, what, is, what are all these things? <laughs> Cognitive, dialectical, family-based therapy. So there are a wide variety of therapeutic approaches we can take, but medications can have a role, for instance, in reducing anxiety, helping with sleep, even helping individuals experiencing more of the delusional thinking and what they see, the body dysmorphia, seeing something that just really isn't there and having a hard time even understanding the severity of their illness. Sometimes we may treat that with certain types of medications we typically use for psychosis or other psychiatric conditions where there's psychosis in the picture. So not to say that it is a psychotic process, but there is some overlap there, I think, between the delusions that one may have with body dysmorphia and what someone may, with schizophrenia may experience with delusional thinking. So sometimes medications like Zyprexa or Abilify can be very helpful for individuals. Again, it's not curative, but if we can help treat, again, thinking about that individual and targeting specific symptoms that may be getting in the way for them to participate in their therapy or to use their coping skills, then medication management uh, approaches can be helpful in those situations. Yeah, and I think you just, you illustrate so beautifully how inherently complex this, any eating disorder is. I mean, all mental illnesses are, but there are just so many factors and there is not kind of a one size fits all approach that at all to the treatment. I mean, even going back to the kind of diagnoses, everyone will have a different one. So it's very, very unique to the individual. So we, we have to kind of be open and interested that there are a lot, but what works for one won't work for another. 
I did want to ask about kind of cross-cultural prevalence. Do we see this in all cultures? Does it discriminate in certain groups? Yes, I think sometimes how we think about and our own biases can cause discrimination when it comes to addressing and even being able to diagnose eating disorders. What we've found here in the United States is that, for instance, Black women are, I would say, maybe 17 to 20 percent of doctors or providers catch eating disorders or diagnose it in Black women compared to more like 50% in other cultures. So we, we don't necessarily ask or evaluate for it as much in other cultures, but that doesn't mean they are not as prevalent. And in, in some cultures, for instance, in Black community, um, Black adolescents, female adolescents, Latino ad- adolescents, the rates of bulimia, binge purging behaviors are actually higher than Caucasian adolescents. So there's been data on that. We also know that rates are significantly higher among gay and bisexual boys, transgendered individuals as well, like extremely higher rates of eating disorders and transgender individuals. So I think, you know, looking at the LGBT community, we often miss eating disorders in boys and in men. I was looking at the data for UK. I think the rates in men are even higher in the UK. So, you know, definitely they get overlooked again because of our own perceptions, but they absolutely don't discriminate. To answer your question, they do impact all races, all genders, all ages. You know, I've had kids as young as six and seven develop eating disorder behaviors. I think my youngest patient who had a true blown eating disorder diagnosis probably about seven. They had avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So again, it can impact all ages. So I think it's important for us to just have a broader sense and understanding about the impact. Unfortunately, those populations tend to be missed or underdiagnosed, so they don't necessarily get access to resources or culturally informed care. I know here in the United States, a lot of that has to do with, you know, there are already so many health disparities that exist, not only for eating disorders, but pretty much every disorder, including even COVID. So, you know, those populations, especially Black and people of color, you know, tend to suffer longer from the illness and seek help at a, a later stage when their disease may have progressed significantly. So they may require higher levels of care for a longer period of time because they're not caught sooner. So all of that to say, we have to do a better job, I think as a medical community to just ask to evaluate all patients and not make assumptions and to make sure that we are offering treatments earlier than you know sooner rather than later because early intervention is definitely one way to help lessen the impact of eating disorders. And that's important because, you know, I I don't, I think a lot of people don't realize, but eating disorders are the second leading cause of death amongst all psychiatric conditions, second to opioid overdose. So we think about all of the attention and all, you know, which is necessary. I mean, we should be talking about opioid use and overdose, but We often neglect to see that eating disorders are the second leading cause of mortality, often because of suicide or cardiac events. So that's something that we all, we want to prevent that, right? So in order to do that, we need to intervene sooner. And in order to do that, we need to make the diagnosis sooner. So we need to be testing and evaluating folks to get the resources that they need. 
mental illness is always sad and hearing about kind of different factors that impact prognosis and diagnosis and things are always quite shocking but as you say in to put it in your words it, it we need to do better it's not at what from what we know particularly about eating disorders of what I've learned today is that you know half the time we can't see them for someone that might be worried about their disordered eating behaviors are there some generalized things that you could say Absolutely. So I think if you're noticing that there may be some, you know, imbalance when it comes to your relationship to nutrition and overeating or undereating or maybe compensating in certain ways and it's not it's not quite developing to a disorder yet, it's not causing an impairment, then there are a few things that you can do. I think number one, seeking out a therapist because our perception may be a little off too. We may think that it's not leading to impairment, but when we actually sit and have a conversation with the therapist who's, you know, welcoming and, you know, it's a safe environment and we can just kind of let our guard down, we may realize, oh, wow, this is actually having more of an impact in my life than I realized, right? And then we may need to then give higher level of care or additional resources. But I think if you're noticing that there's some disordered eating behaviors, definitely reach out to a therapist. I think, you know, it's great to be able to be in a space where you can have someone who can help you be accountable, but also just someone who can listen and help you get to your goals, right? So that can be helpful. Uh, also, finding a dietitian can be really helpful. And I encourage everyone to do that. I know here in the United States, you know, it's sometimes covered by insurance. You all have a totally different healthcare system that is far better than ours. <laughs> Access to care here, I just have to say, access to eating disorder treatment in the United States is a complete mess. If you can find a dietitian, again, who can help you with that relationship with food, how do we find balance? You know, if you're a working mom and you're struggling, you know, trying to take care of everything at work and you got a, a newborn and you're doing all sorts of things, it'd be really hard, right, not to find structure. So sometimes a dietitian can be really helpful for that to say, okay, you're busy. So here's when we can get in your meals. Here's how we can provide more structure for you. Here's how we can incorporate some other food groups to give you some more balance. So I love being able to work with a dietitian, even if you don't have a quote unquote disorder. I think that could be helpful really for any of us. Um, so those will be the two things. And, you know, organizations like the National Eating Disorder Association, they have a lot of really great tools. If you look at Project Heal's website, they have a whole host of collaborators like therapists and dietitians that they work with. You know, NAMI is also a great resource. There are things out there. If you feel like you're struggling, though, if it's becoming more of an issue, please don't, don't wait to seek treatment. And that would be my hope is that sometimes as you said, Hannah, it can be so personal. We feel like we have to suffer in silence and there can be a sense of shame and stigma that we associate with those behaviors and that can cause us to go into hiding and to isolate. That's probably the worst thing we can do when we're dealing with an eating disorder. We really wanna make sure that we're getting a treatment team together. So including your GP, therapist, maybe a psychiatrist. You don't have to have a psychiatrist, but that can be helpful if there are other coexisting mental health conditions. So you don't have to suffer in silence. There is help available. We have resources to help you get through this eating disorder, whatever you're dealing with. And so there's hope on the other side. Yeah, I, I've said this before and I'll say it a million gazillion times, but if you have a headache, you don't 
think, oh, I'm just going to suffer in silence. And, you know, you don't get cancer and think, oh, I'll just let my let time heal it. You go to the doctor and you speak about it. And so I think it's the same. It's the same thing. And I do think you picked on a on a really important point, which we didn't really get to talk at all in depth about is that kind of money value and the demand. And I think that is what makes people so disproportionately affected by mental illness because those that can't afford to seek help are the ones inevitably that are most greatly impacted. It's absolutely soul destroying really to think about it. And I mean, I we have the NHS fortunately, but I can't imagine in in America where you need kind of private healthcare. It's, it's very sad, but I want to say thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful. I have loved speaking to you. I, uh, I would love to speak to you again in the future. If you have another time, we could do a part two. Hey, I'm for it. <laughs> I love that. I've really enjoyed learning from you. I found it really interesting and really insightful. And I having worked with people with eating disorders before still learned from you so I really think people will learn from this thank you so much for for taking the time I'm really grateful lovely to meet you nice meeting you too Hannah thanks for having me bye thank you thanks for listening to today's conversation with Dr Erica Jurassa if you've been affected by anything that you've heard in this chat and you feel you need support, then please do contact the GP or seek support from charities such as Mind or Beat. The pandemic may have exacerbated pre-existing conditions as well as brought on personal struggles, so please do seek help if you need it. If you'd like to follow Erica on Instagram, you can find her at at Dr underscore E2K. I'll link in the information. And if you did enjoy the episode and want to keep up with Psych Summaries, please do subscribe and follow the account at Psych Summaries on Instagram. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.